Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's summer in the Mississippi Delta, and three siblings have been warned to stay away from the old rock quarry called the Devil's Place. But one hot August day, the older two are banished from the house along with their six-year-old sister. They head over to the forbidden quarry to swim. By day's end, Pansy, the little sister, is gone, and the older two are left with only questions. Why did they leave Pansy alone while they picked berries? And what did 14-year-old Bert see in the woods? Bert is convinced that her missing father took the little sister. Snippets of the South's horrifying history and the father's hidden past surface in alternating chapters. Then the mother dies of heartbreak. The years pass, and Bert and her brother begin a journey to find the truth. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host of New Books and Literature for the New Books Network, and I'm talking to Tiffany Quay Tyson. Today we're discussing her new novel, The Past is Never, a 2018 okra pick of the Southern Independent Booksellers Alliance. Hi, Tiffany, and thank you for joining me on this new books podcast. Hi, Galit. I'm super happy to be here. So let's start with you telling us how you came to write this beautiful story. Well, first of all, thank you for calling it beautiful. <laughs> and, um, you know, I was, after my first book came out, or actually I should say before my first book came out, I had started trying to think about what I wanted to write next and what I wanted to explore. Um, I got the idea, I, I started out with the idea of exploring um, memory and kind of the way that if two people witness the same incident or experience the same incident, they will, in fact, remember it in very different ways. And as I started thinking about that, and I was writing all these little, I, I, I write in a very nonlinear way, I tend to write scenes and snippets, and then I kind of figure out how things go together, um, particularly when I'm first starting a novel. And as I was playing around with that idea of the sort of slipperiness of memory and the way that our experiences um, make us all come to our experiences in a different way, I got to um, I, I got to this 
point where I was writing about these siblings. And I thought, you know, that's a good point to start where you're because siblings experience so many things together, but they're different ages and they're they come to the world with different perceptions, even though they've been raised kind of in the same way. So I wrote that scene. I wrote a scene that's one of the first scenes in the novel where these three siblings go out to uh, a quarry that is forbidden. And um, that's what sort of sets off the, the entire novel. And as I was writing, my idea about memory sort of started to shift and change. And I started exploring the idea of the stories that we tell in our families. I, I am particularly interested in the way stories evolve and change through the generations. And I don't know if you've had this experience, but I've certainly had this experience. Um, when I'm, you know, when you're growing up and your parents tell you a story when you're very young, they tell you a certain version of a story that might have something to do with your family, with your grandparents or with them, maybe how they met. And then as you get a little bit older, that story begins to evolve and change. And then as you get older still, that story might be completely different than the one they told you as a child. I mean, as an example, you know, this is the story of how we met. And we, um, you know, went on a date together at a restaurant. And then later on, it's like, oh, no, we met at a bar. And then <laughs> later, you might discover, um, you know, something even more, uh, a little more um, verboten. And so I like the idea of exploring how these stories that we tell one another kind of evolve and change and shift, not only as people get older, but as the generations pass. And that ultimately is what drove me writing the story was the idea of talking about storytelling. Mm. So we have a lot to talk about. First of all, when this happens and the kids run to swim in the quarry on this very hot day. Yeah. Yeah. It turns out that their father is away a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they're not surprised that he's been gone for over three weeks when their right. sister, when the little sister disappears. What can you tell us about their father and his, the schemes that he is involved in with Uncle Chester? Well, the father is not exactly a uh, stand-up guy when it comes to his employment. He doesn't, he really never considers going out and looking for a traditional job or, um, you know, filing for social security. I and mean, he really lives kind of outside of the margins. He had a an interesting and um, sort of rough upbringing, and he has basically learned how to make a living by uh, counterfeiting money at this point. He's had other schemes in the past, but this is what he's doing now. And he and Uncle Chester have um, been basically washing bills and reprinting them as larger bills, which is a thing that counterfeiters actually do. Um, And then they launder that money. So they basically go out and spend it all over the South and then either return things to get good money back, are in some cases they can sell the bills uh, to people who are kind of down on their luck and who need, you know, who, who might have $5, but they don't have 50. And so they're trying to um, get a little, get a little something for nothing, I guess. Well, this takes place, was it in the 80s? The 19, it starts in 1976. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So, at that time, that was more possible. Now, it might not be as easy to do. Correct. Correct. It would be a little bit harder. Although, ultimately, if someone is counterfeiting, um, this is the way, this is the best way to do it and not get caught, at least 
at the source, you know, at the store or wherever you're actually spending cash. Of course, people spend a lot less cash nowadays. Right. Right. So there's such an interesting uh, dichotomy between mythology and mm-hmm. history. So that you have a, you have, you share a lot of history, but you also share a lot of stories based on different kinds of myths. Could you talk about that? Absolutely. And that's part of what I mean when I say that it's sort of a story about storytelling. Um, there are these threads, and that's what you're, you're kind of alluding to here, that go through, that talk about the past, um, particularly the past surrounding this quarry that they were not supposed to go swim in, but other, other places as well, and other family lore as well. And um, one of the things that I find fascinating and have always found fascinating is the idea that a particular place carries memories or carries a curse. That's what I worked with here was the idea that something could, that a place could be cursed in Mississippi, which is where I grew up and where much of the story is set. There are a number of places like this. I think it's probably true everywhere because that's where I grew up. I'm familiar with those places. There's a place in Natchez, Mississippi called the devil's punch bowl. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but it's basically a huge depression on the Mississippi River. It's just a big old, um, like, cavernous depression. There are a lot of wild peach trees growing around this depression. Just after the Civil War, and actually probably at the end of the Civil War, it was a concentration camp that where freed slaves were forced into labor. It, People didn't like the idea that they were free. They captured them. And, and many were Union soldiers who did this. They captured them, marched them in there, put them into, um, basically put them back into slavery. And thousands, tens of thousands of those slaves, freed slaves, died in that particular depression. And so to this day, people are pretty sure that it's haunted. Um, even now, when it floods, the bones will come up. And the one other thing that this particular place is known for is its prolific wild peach trees. But the locals don't eat the fruit because they know that the land is fertilized by the bodies of these slaves. So it's, a t- it's both terrible and fascinating at the same time to me that, you know, something that happened 150, more than 150 years ago, can continue to have an effect on the residents and the people who live and who, you know, exist in this area. So I'm fascinated by the idea of that. And there are a number of, um, a number of stories like this, you know, there's the idea that um, of the, the blues musician, Robert Johnson, who um, went to the crossroads and sold his soul to the devil. And that actually happened, you know, through lore that happened pretty close to where I have set my Mississippi Delta town. And so there's this, you know, there's this long and storied history in Mississippi and in in other places in the South where there are these sort of folkloric mythological tales that are actually based in something that happened. Um, And people are still responding to things that happened a hundred years ago or 200 years ago. And I'm fascinated by that. Mm. So the devil's place or rock quarry in the book, is that based on the devil, uh, the place that you were just discussing? Or is this a new 
it's in, it's not in the same geographical location, oh. so it is not the same place. And it, but based the, on it, but you know, some of the mythology is based on it. Mm. So Bert is telling the story the teenage when she's a teenager, and she says mm-hmm. that Pansy was strange and different from birth. Right, with a large purple birthmark on her thigh, and she was beautiful. And the most important thing was that she was their mother's favorite child. Mm-hmm. What can we talk about? Well, you know, um, I like the idea of exploring. I like. I started out to explore the sibling relationships, and um, once I started kind of going down that path. And I I felt like I had Bert, you know, Bert pretty well set in my mind. I knew who Bert was. And Bert was an ordinary girl, but an ordinary girl with a good deal of spunk and curiosity and, um, you know, someone who was not going to be easily deterred as she went out and tried to solve the mysteries of her family, which she does. And I felt like I had Willett pretty well settled in my mind. Um, You know, Willett was was an ordinary boy. He's an ordinary boy doing the best he can, and he'll step in and help anyone. But Pansy, as the younger child, I wanted to set her apart somehow because she's, you know, she does go missing very early in the book, and they are searching for her. And when I'm thinking about those sibling relationships, I mean, one thing that's great about sibling relationships is that um, sometimes the siblings are, you know, are close and it's, they're great friends, but quite often it's deeper and more complicated than that. And the siblings, there's some level of resentment or competition. And so with Pansy, I was kind of playing with that. And then of course um, there, there is some information about Pansy that comes out later in the book that I won't reveal here um, that makes her different it makes her differentness, her otherness make more sense, I think, to the reader. It, and, and to Bert, it reveals why she's why she was treated differently, why she was raised differently in the time that she was raised with them. Um, and Bert learns to, I think, embrace it and accept it. Um, but she does resent it as well. Yeah. So at the quarry where they're not supposed to be on the day that right. Pansy goes missing... Bert Mm -hmm. sees a strange friend of her brother Willits who points to the sky without talking to her. What can you tell us about Bubba Speck? (laughs) Well, Bubba was, um, Bubba was a friend of the family. He was a friend of Willits really. And he's one of those kids that I think exists in every community. Actually, lots of these kids exist. He's a little bit strange. He believes odd things. Um, and he's kind of misunderstood, you know, people are quick to actually point the finger at him for the disappearance of Pansy, even though there's really no evidence that he would have had anything to do with it, but he was there and proximity sometimes, um, proximity is sometimes enough to, to take on blame. And so Bob is a little bit strange and he believes strange things. And because of this, I think people don't trust him. People are a little suspicious of him. And I'm kind of fascinated by people who believe in, and I, I like to explore this as well. People who are either superstitious or they believe in magic or they believe in, in Bubba's case, alien visitations are any number of things that we consider a little bit outside mainstream 
belief. There are actually, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of people out there who believe these things too. And, and many for good reason. Many feel like they have evidence that, that these things are happening, whether it's hauntings, which I also deal with in my book a little bit, um, or whether it's the idea of alien abductions or, you know, curses and myths. And so Bubba was just another side of that coin that I felt like I wanted to explore. And he also was someone that at, at one point in the book that Burke could turn to um, as as another person who shared this experience, but has a very different memory of it. Mm-hmm. Um, the quarry itself is almost like a character, the, the mm-hmm. geography of it, the location of it, and everything that happened there. Let's talk about that. Yeah, I, I really am. Um, I'm always working to make the places in my work, whether it's, you know, a novel or a shorter piece, um, characters. I think it's, I just, I'm fascinated um, by the idea of how, you know, a person who is raised in Jackson, Mississippi, as I was raised in Jackson, Mississippi, will not come to the world in the same way that a person who was raised in New York City will come to the world. I mean, we could be the same age, we could be the same basic social economic bracket. And we could be the same political affiliation, all of that. And yet, if I were to meet a woman who was practically my twin, who'd been raised in a completely different place, you know, we would be changed by that in a really dramatic and important way. And I like to, um, I like to explore that in books, even when that's not the core thing I'm exploring. And so I'm always thinking about the way that a particular place can press itself against the characters and actually influence the characters, actually push push against the characters. And I think the quarry does that. I mean, the characters go and they sort of trespass into this, this dangerous place, this place they've been warned against. I mean, their father tells them, you should not swim in the quarry. It's the devil's place. It's cursed. Bad things happen there. And he has good reason. You know, he has his experience tells him this is good reason to warn his children away from the quarry. But kids being kids, you know, there's nothing better than forbid than the forbidden. And they're hot and it's a place that they can swim. So, you know, they go despite the warnings, despite all of the admonitions from their, their father and their parents in general. Um and so once they do, and then something bad actually does happen, I feel like the quarry haunts them. I feel like they do blame the quarry to some extent um, for what happened and themselves for, for disobeying their father and for not paying attention to his warnings. Mm-hmm. Um, I love Granny Clem, who is mm-hmm. famous for dealing with pregnant women and girls and famous mm-hmm. for her lemon pound cake. Wish the recipe had been in the back of the book. <laughs> well, maybe maybe in the paperback, we'll see. Um, yeah, I uh, I love to cook and bake myself, and so I often I write about food a lot. I mean, I think I when I'm writing about people having meals or um, cooking, that's often based on my personal experience. And a lot of the women that I grew up with actually had specialties. My grandmother was known for her coconut cake, well known, like. Throughout the state, we we thought, and maybe that was true. Um, and so, a lot of a lot of the women I grew up with had a special confection that they would make and that they were known for. And I wanted to give that to Granny Clem. And I don't I don't know how I settled on the lemon pound cake necessarily, except that it's probably what I wanted that day um, <laughs> to eat, <laughs> and it sounded good for summer. Um, 
so, you know, I did, uh, I did give her that, but I also think I, I, like I said, I love to cook myself. I actually worked as a baker for a brief period of time and I love to bake. I love getting my hands in the dough. I love mixing up batters and, you know, it's, it's really a great pleasure for me. And I do think that, you know, the process of um, preparing a cake or a big meal or, or something like that for a person is a healing act. I mean, it's an act of love. It's an act of healing. It's an act that says, you know, you are valued and you matter to me. And so a lot of what Granny Clem does is about that. And it's not just, you know, she makes those lemon pound cakes, of course, but she also um, is a healer in a way. And so she grows healing herbs and she uses those herbs and her own self-taught medical training, as you said, to deliver babies, sometimes to end a pregnancy. Um, she hasn't, she's built up kind of like um, Earl, kind of like the, the father, Bert's father. She has also built an outside the mainstream career for herself. She makes a living doing things that aren't a hundred percent legal all the time, but she lives in a place as many people do where medical care, particularly medical care for women, is um, sparse. You have to drive a long way to have some of these services provided for you. And if you're a particular sort of woman, you may not even have those options. And so Granny Clem feels what I feel is a really particular need in this community. And I, I wanted her to be, I know she was, you know, she's doing some things that are a little bit, like I said, not 100% legal, and some people might consider some of her actions to not be 100% moral, but I really wanted her to be the sort of character you would love enough to forgive any transgressions. I love her too. I loved her too. I want a grandma <laughs> like that. She, um, you tell the story within the story, within another story of when she was young. Her, Granny Clem was young Clementine, and she had a best friend yeah. named Aura. And I mm -hmm. was very moved by the story of the woman who was raped by one of the German prisoners in 1944. Mm -hmm. So how did you come up with a, um, a, a camp that German prisoners in Mississippi? How did you come up with that? That is, that is based on an actual um, story. There were German prisoner of war camps in Mississippi. They, um, there were several and the German prisoners were put into service to chop cotton and, that sort of thing. So um, it's, you know, so that was actually, that part of it was, was, was based on history. The woman who's running away and, you know, um, actually being raped by the soldier, that was my imagination. But there was a, a woman in the Delta who was the wife of a fairly prominent man who did in fact run off with one of the German soldiers. So that was the germ of the idea for the story for me. It became a completely different story in my writing of it, but that's where I started. Um, I love the part where Bert starts working for Granny Clem at learning about midwifery and herbs. Mm -hmm. That was a wonderful con continuation. So is Thank Bert's you. going to take yeah. over? Um, you know, I don't know if Bert will actually take over. I think that Bert will never, I mean, I think that Bert will not lose uh, the knowledge, will never lose the knowledge that she gained working for Granny Clem. And I think that she is a, um, 
I think that the things she learned will continue to serve her, whether she continue, whether she chooses to live the same life Granny Clem does. I don't know so much about that. That goes beyond the the imagination of the book, I think. But um, I do think that everything, and Bert does use what she's learned, actually, later in the book to some extent. And I think that everything she has learned will continue to inform what she does. I can't imagine that Bert's going to um, run off and get into a profession that isn't helping people. I do think she'll be, she'll, she'll help in some way. We haven't talked about Loretta, Willet, Bert, and Tammy's mother, mm-hmm. Earl's wife. Right. So Loretta also ha- comes with a story. Yes. And um, Loretta, you know, a lot of these characters who, particularly of Loretta's generation, uh, were in some way orphaned and ended up, because at some point, Granny Clem and Aura, uh, her friend, were taking in orphans, basically. And so Loretta, I think, is, um, she's an interesting character, because when we first meet her, she's just an ordinary mom. I mean, she's cooking dinner for her kids. She's She basically chases them out of the house and says, go away, because you're driving me crazy, as you know, moms do. And then, of course, by the time they come back at the end of that day at the quarry, everything has changed and her youngest, her favorite is missing. Um, and so she changes very dramatically, very quickly from a woman who is an ordinary mother doing the best she can um, with a man who is not around very much, which I think is not an unusual story in this country or probably any country. Um, A man who is not around very much with very little help. And she has pulled herself up through a very difficult upbringing, um, her own self. She lost her parents in a violent way and her, um, you know, was kind of taken in by by this family and, um, ended up finding her husband. Um, but she, and she loves her husband, even though he's not, not there a lot. I mean, I wanted that to be clear. This wasn't some marriage of convenience or, um, because they didn't have any other choices. You know, she, she loved him. Um, but yeah, so she goes from being really an ordinary wife and mother to being a person who feels like she has lost everything very, very quickly over the course of the book. And it, it does, it does destroy her. It takes her down. This is really the bottom line. It's a, it's a coming of age story for Bert. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. And yeah, one of the first early things that she does to gain independence that she desperately needs is um, going to see Bubba after she hears him talking on the radio. Right. Interesting scene. Yeah, well, so I don't know if you have ever stayed up very, very late and listened to AM radio, um, but there are all these shows on late at night where people do talk about their alien abductions or their encounters with past life or um, with ghosts or or that kind of thing. I, I was not particularly familiar with this world until for some unknown reason. Uh, my mother mentioned that she had listened to some of these radio shows and she's, she's not, my mother is the most practical down to earth woman you could ever imagine. And then my husband, um, we were going somewhere, I just driving across Colorado and it was late and he had dialed them in as well. And they really are fascinating programs where people call in and share these stories. And there's this sense that the people who are calling in, like this is their only lifeline to someone who's going to believe them because they are not believed about what they're saying in every other facet of their life. 
But come, you know, midnight, um, there's some guy on the other end of the line who will listen to you and who will believe you and who will share your story, not just with him, but with all of his listeners. Um, And so once I, you know, once I settled on Bubba's kind of obsession with the supernatural or with the extraterrestrial, I just thought it would be the perfect job for him, frankly. And so I gave him that radio show and had people call in. And of course, when Bert hears it, her first thought is, here is someone else who shared this experience that won't leave me year after year after year and that I would like to solve. And I am going to go find him. And she does. Um, And I I really, I like the idea of someone listening to the radio, recognizing a voice and then getting in their car and going. Even if the callers are telling talking about how they were abducted by aliens and returned. Sure. I mean, (laughs) I mean, maybe it's not the wise. Right, right, right. Maybe it's not the wisest thing to just go running off to uh, talk to someone who is ultimately a stranger by this point. But, um, you know, Bert's been on her own for a long time now. Nobody's raising her really at this point. She's, you know, she's raised herself. And like you said, it is a coming of age story. It is, um, it is Bert discovering who she is and who her family is, why she is who she is. And I think this was one part of that discovery. You know, she's chasing down what people believe and she finds that Bubba maybe believes something completely different than everyone else. Um, and I think that Bert would, ch- would chase any belief um, if it had to do with the disappearance of her sister and her father. At that point. And the other thing that, uh, helps her move towards adulthood is after the mm-hmm. um, 1980 in 1980, they find a decomposed, a decomposed body in an Everglades, mm-hmm. Everglades motel. And, and there's some speculation that it could be Earl, her father. Mm-hmm. And now she goes on a journey. Right. So um, yeah, she and Willett after they find after this body is found and they are told that it is is her father. She so they wonder why why would our father be in the Florida Everglades? Um, and at that point, there's nothing holding them to the Mississippi Delta anymore. And Bert is really kind of nervous to leave. She's never left. She's never traveled. She's young. You know, all of this stuff happened when she was quite young. And so she's never really traveled much outside this small, tiny sphere that she lives in. But Willett, in the intervening years, has actually been supporting the family, and he has been out working on construction crews. And so he has traveled a little bit more extensively. And he's the one who originally says then we need to go to Florida. We need to go to the Everglades. Um, We need to find out what he was doing there because Willett, I think they both still believe really that what makes the most sense is that their father took their sister. They've both been gone this whole time. And they're still sort of chasing that possibility. So when that body turns up, they go. And now they're in Florida. And it turns out that Mm -hmm. Willett has stolen some pictures from Granny Clem. Right. So Willett Willett does not trust Granny Clem quite in the same way that Bert always has. Um, He doesn't have quite the same close relationship with her. And he has always believed that Granny Clem might know a little more than she's letting on about his sister's disappearance, about his father's disappearance. And so he's been snooping and he has uh, taken some old photographs and also a few other little, I like to think of them as totems, um, that he feels like might help them 
locate their father, you know, locate someone who has, has known their father or locate someone who might know where Pansy is. Um, and they are actually uh, showing these pictures around the Florida Everglades to see if anyone will recognize them, even though the pictures are of his father as a young, you know, as a boy. Is your portrayal of the Everglades as this very insider, outsider, not very friendly, um, very, everybody is very uh, cautious. Is that based on anything or did you invent that? Is that really how the Everglades are? Well, I, I won't, I, I won't say that people aren't friendly because they are. I've, uh, we actually, my husband and I actually went to the Everglades um, when I had decided that this particular story was going to go there. I've, I've spent a lot of time, I've spent a good deal of time in Florida and a little bit in the Everglades, but not a ton. And, but when I was writing the book, I said, if I'm going to write scenes here, I have to go. And we did. And we went kayaking and we went on a boat trip and we saw the 10,000 islands. And so a lot of the things I write about were really based on that one particular trip. And the people were friendly. Um, but there is a guardedness, I would say. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that in the 1980s, there were multiple sweeping federal drug busts in the Everglades, because it was the place where most of the marijuana was coming in from Colombia. And so there was this huge trade that was happening there at the time um, where the fishermen and, and the fishermen had been, that's how people made their living mostly was, was going out and fishing and they would send that fish out all over the, all over America. But the fishermen had been curtailed quite a bit by all of these new sort of federal laws that came in and said, no, this is a protected area. You can no longer fish it or you can only fish it from, you know, for these three days this month. I mean, it was there were some very harsh restrictions being put on people's livelihood. And in order to make up the difference, they started bussing in or not bussing in. They started fishing basically for bales of marijuana out in the Florida Everglades. And so that actual, that those events play a role in the book, though I, you know, mine is, is fictionalized. But um, because of that, a huge portion of their adult male population was actually arrested in the 1980s. And so they had reason to become mistrustful. Um, and there's, before that, you know, even before the marijuana trade, there was smuggling of people. There was smuggling of rum. It, it's a port. It's a port where things come in that are not necessarily welcomed or they're not welcomed by the law. And so they do, there is some reason for them to be mistrustful. And it's pretty isolated. You have to want to go there. You're not going to stumble mm-hmm. upon it. Well, I really, I found it very satisfying how you mm-hmm. uh, led to those concluding chapters and uh, how Willett found his niche and Bert found what she was looking for. It was, it was really well done. So kudos to you. Thank you. And I've taken up so much of your time already. I'd like to ask you the traditional closing new books question. What's next for you? What are you working on? Well, I am working on a new book. It's um, still in the very early stages. And so at that point, I don't like to talk too much about what, uh, like the plot or what it's about so much. Um, But I am working on something that is set in Jackson, Mississippi, which is the place in Mississippi where I spent most of my time as a child and young adult, um, where I was raised. And uh, I'm actually kind of playing with the idea of um, 
setting it on the street where I where I grew up. I, I have such strong memories, of course, I think as everyone does. But I lived in that I lived in the house where I grew up from birth till the time I left for college. Um, we never moved, you know, it, it was a great, it was actually a great house. It was a great neighborhood. And, um, so I'm kind of exploring the idea of setting it in that neighborhood, but in a very different time period. And so that's what I'm working with right now. I'm still in the very early stages, but I'm also working on some shorter stuff and, um, hopefully some of that will come out before I can get a new novel out. I hope you'll let me know when your new novel comes out. Thank you so much for sharing your time with me, Tiffany. It has been a real pleasure. Thank you so much, Galit. It's been great to talk to you. And thank you for listening to this podcast from the New Books Network. Once again, I'm GP Gottlieb, host of New Books and Literature. And today I've been talking with Tiffany Quay Tyson about her novel, The Past is Never. Join the New Books Network and learn both about my upcoming podcasts and those of other hosts in a variety of categories. Goodbye until my next conversation for the New Books Network. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.